Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Travis Fisher and Rachel Wilfong. Now, before we go any further, I want to remind you about the Power Hour's email account. Travis, I know this is your favorite thing, so why don't you tell us what the email account is? Because I will obviously get it wrong. Well, it's very important to get the .org part of it right. Right. The, so it's .org something? The Power Hour at heritage.org. That's where the org goes. The right. Power Hour at heritage.org. All right, very good. Let's start a conversation. Reach out to us. Write it down, everyone. The Power Hour at heritage.org. Rachel, you're with us again today. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Jack? I'm very good. So it's been a week since you were with us last. That's correct. You ready to go? Ready as I'll ever be. Travis, you fired up? Absolutely. All right. Now, I know I'm always excited about the Power Hour. But today, oh boy, do we have a treat for you. Our goal is always to be entertaining and informative, of course. And we just happen today to have the most entertaining and informative person in Washington, D.C. Now, normally around now, I'd give you a little rundown about what we're going to talk about. I can honestly say that I have no idea because our guests could go in almost any direction. But I will go out on, out on a limb and say we'll probably talk about some energy, some environment, maybe some politics. We'll see how it goes. Now, Travis and Rachel, did I pique your interests? Sure did. Pique mine. Yeah, I don't know where this is going to go, but it's going to get weird, I'm sure of that. <laughs> All right. Well, with that introduction, we welcome Mike McKenna. Welcome, Mike. What's up? Not much. We'll, we'll, we'll see now, Mike. By the way, who's this informative, entertaining person we're having on later? Is it me? No, I, I was talking about myself. Oh, okay. Just want to make sure. No, no, it's me. It's me. I plan on giving boring, canned answers like I always do. <laughs> That's what we were hoping for. Um, I don't know your title, Mike. I've known you forever. But what, what do you call yourself? You've done work at the federal level, the state level. You you're, do private practice stuff. Um, what in the world do you do? Um, I do everything. My title for the IRS or for like normal people? For just you and me. You should, just, you should call me Mr. President. Mr. President of what? <laughs> President of MWR Strategies. That's, right. what the, that's how the IRS knows me. All right. Mr. Pres El Presidente. El Presidente. My, my, El Jefe. Actually, that is exactly what my children and grandchildren call me, El Jefe. El so, Jefe. So that's right. okay, too. All right. Can you guys live with that El Jefe for the afternoon? El Jefe. Yeah. And it fits. It does it, fit. It fits. Yeah. It fits. So, You're going to take over an island somewhere <laughs> one day. Do you have your eye on, on an island? Um. You know, one of these days, one of these days, El Jefe is going to strike. You know, you, if you're going to strike, you're going to have to strike fast because, as we're told all the time, the, glo the, the, the seas are rising. Yeah. So now, if you're going to make that move, now is probably the time to do it. Seize Nantucket in a <laughs> hostile takeover. <laughs> all right. All right. Isn't that where the president lives? I don't know where... Does the president know where the president is? President lives? Obama? Isn't the President Obama? Doesn't is he, he live still in the president? I don't know. Well, I mean, he still has the honorific of president. If I have the honorific of, honorific of El Jefe, I'm going to give him the courtesy of calling him El Presidente. All right. Very good. And then order some cigars from him. All right. I didn't know Do about this whole El Jefe thing. I, I, I wish there was, I wish I had known because I feel like wow. you need a headdress and feathers and some other uh, interesting things. Now, I, paint. I know Mike's a lot of things. But oh. a cultural appropriator is not one of them. He would not be caught dead in a headdress, I would think. That's right. Mostly because they look ridiculous. Oh, I don't know. This whole El Jefe thing is kind of ridiculous. Appropriating-ish, isn't it? What do you mean? I don't know. I, Are you actually Hispanic? No. Okay. Why? What, what? I'm sorry, only Hispanic people can use the Spanish language? I, maybe. I don't know the rules. I, well, look, and let me make you feel better about it. I'm a Catholic, so we're co-religionists, and I've checked with a bunch of different Spanish people, including my Puerto Rican relatives, um, nieces and nephews, and they're all okay with it. Oh, all right. good. No, that makes it okay, I think. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the rules. Did, Mike, this, ju this did Mike just say he has some friends 
who are Hispanic. I don't have friends who are Hispanic. I don't have friends who are Hispanic. I have actually relatives who are Hispanic. All right, good. Nieces and, nieces, nieces and nephews. Hey, because I work at this organization, before I get myself and fired. my colleagues fired. Before everybody gets fired here. <laughs> Let's move on to something else. Um, Went on. I'm very proud of my Hispanic relatives. Oh, my God. What We're all, I'm proud of you and your Hispanic relatives. We, we are very fortunate. We are very, very, very fortunate in this hemisphere that we have um, a union of two great empires, right? The great British Empire and the great Spanish Empire. I am very glad that this, this hemisphere is dominated by Spaniards and their lineal descendants and British and their lineal descendants because our other choices would be the French or the Germans or the Italians. Nobody wants that. And That's why this hemisphere rules because we picked them right. And as bad as our energy policy is now, yeah, man. Think of what the derivative of that would exactly. have been. Exactly. Try to imagine if, like, we had a big old German-speaking nation right in the middle of the hemisphere. <laughs> it would be a damn disaster. <laughs> I could go into my own heritage in reference to that, but I'm not because I'm trying to get off this subject. Instead, let me just ask you straight up. You want to um, be entertained and informed. Come on, ask. man. Just let El Jefe do his job. <laughs> go ahead. As a Jewish person, I would like to know, what's going on with energy policy? <laughs> <laughs> that I did not see coming. That I did not see coming. Um, which energy policies, which, do you, which would you like to talk about first, the, the oil and gas part of the world or the electricity part of the world? Here's where I'd like to start. Yes. A few years ago, we would be in here talking about energy dominance. Yes. And now we are in here talking about energy impotence. How did we get from there to here? And then we can go into details on different things. Like, how in the world did that happen so quickly? Uh, Yes. Well, um, can I say transition after you've said impotence? No, I guess I can. It all has to do with the energy transition. We've transitioned from dominance to impotence. It, can I, is that, I think everything's on the table, El Jefe. Yeah, seriously. Uh, obviously. Um, look, the administration, the current administration, um, and their friends have a very clear view of the world, and that is... Um, oil and gas is bad. Not that we don't have enough of it. You know, the, the arguments the arguments over the years, this has been really interesting, the arguments over the years against oil and gas have kind of fallen away, right? It used to be, hey, they're scarce, you know, oil and gas are scarce and getting scarcer, and it's terrible to pull them out of the ground, and they're polluting when they get out of the ground, and they're inefficient, and blah, blah, blah. All that stuff has just fallen away. It's all just, hey, oil and gas is, are bad because climate. Right. That's it. Everything's been subsumed under that, under that, um, which is great because it provides some clarity. Right. And the other reason why you can't talk about oil and gas production being bad is because battery production and um, solar panel production is by any valuable metric, by any accurate metric is far worse. Right. And whatever else you got to say about the oil and gas majors, they don't actually run death camps like the Chinese. So um, am I allowed to say that? Yeah. yeah. I will point out for your listeners' purposes that the Trump administration and the Biden administration both identified communist China as a genocidal regime. So it's not a it's not a monopartisan thing. It's a bipartisan thing. It's important to keep in mind as we go along. Anyway, long story short, Biden administration's decided oil and gas are bad. Um, therefore, we need to get off them to, to sweet at whatever price, right? And um, the reality of it is, is that um, people are going to resist that until, unless and until they have a reliable and affordable substitutes for oil and gas. And that's 30 years away, 40 years away, 50 years away. So for however long we're going to have to do this, we're going to have to listen to this, um, some of this stuff. The other thing I would put in your head about energy dominance is um, the history of energy is that every new source is additive. It doesn't replace. It's additive, right? Coal did not replace people burning wood. It added to it. Oil did not replace people using coal. It added to it. Natural gas did not I mean people didn't use oil. It added to it. Nuclear is the same, right? So if we are going to have this big thing where we have wind and solar and batteries and all this other stuff, it too is going to be additive. So the whole foundational, intellectual foundation of this transition is really rickety. Next president's probably going to wash it away, Republican or Democrat, to be honest with you. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the interesting things with the transition is that we got this natural experiment, thanks to our good friend 
Vladimir Putin, yeah. who uh, shows exactly how hard it is to transition um, just 10% of your energy away from yeah. the uh, horrible hydrocarbons. And, you know, the, the, the Biden administration and the rest of the, uh, the globalists um, want to make us do that completely. I mean, it, we, we've seen in real time how it, absolutely impossible that is to do. It's interesting, right? What's interesting about it, that there's all kinds of interesting things about the war in Ukraine, not the least of which is the Americans are funding both sides now, <laughs> as are the Europeans. Um, but the interesting thing about it, just from an energy perspective, is, is that the uh, team Biden has been quietly um, moving LNG projects along through the process very quickly. Very quickly, um, and and feeder pipes into LNG projects, right? Liquefaction, um, liquefaction facilities here in the states, right? And that's all designed specifically to bail the Europeans out from their problems. Great for America, great for our production, right? Um, we're producing more natural gas than we ever have. Um, we're using more natural gas than we ever had. Um, oil, same way. Um, so the administration has got itself a, a schizophrenia, a bit of a schizophrenic problem here. Um, the, other thing that's interesting about it is, and I talk about this all the time, um, I, I've written columns about it, right? The other, the other thing that's interesting about it is the Europeans are outbidding everybody else for that gas, gas that would have otherwise gone to marginal um, uh, customers in places like Asia and Africa are not going there, right? So essentially the Europeans, by their feckless and careless approach to um, foreign policy and energy policy at the same time, have managed to impoverish a good chunk of the globe that was not previously impoverished. Um, yay! Well, it, it it's is, not it their is, first time down it, that road. Right, exactly. It, it is. It, that's exactly where I was going. It is an abject lesson in two things. Two things. First off, we are fettered to a corpse. Now, anybody who can tell me the origin of that original that quote originally, I'll give you 20 bucks. Anybody? I'm drawing a blank. Anybody? LFA. Anybody? Nothing. Really? Really? How's your history of World War One? Poor. <laughs> well, you're a product of the American educational <laughs> system. So, in World War One, like Mike, that was educated <laughs> in some unnamed Hispanic country, apparently. <laughs> well, I don't want to brag here, but yeah, I, I went to the finest high school in this in this here Washington D.C. area, um, Bishop Arden, ladies and gentlemen, class of. Well, let's not get into that. After a particularly bad defeat in World War One where the Italians beat the Austrians, Paul Ludendorff, who was the German general staff officer for World War I, said, was asked about it by a press person, and he just simply said, we are fettered to a corpse, because Austria was, of course, their, their ally, right? When it, comes to, when it comes to NATO, we are fettered to a corpse. It's, it's, a, it's a shell. It's a fantasy. It doesn't exist. We've given more money to the Ukrainians than all of everybody else in NATO combined. It's their own continent, for God's sake. So that's point one I want to make. Point two I want to make is I am right, and this is a proof point about the, the virtue of the Western Hemisphere. We don't have any of those losers over here. This is why we're so great. Thank you. See, don't send hate mail to these guys. They're not going to forward it on to me. Just send it to me directly. But if you do want to send us mail, hate or otherwise, Travis, where do they do that? The Power Hour at Heritage.org. Very good. Power I'll, I'll read, I'll the read power, every— The Power Hour the, at Heritage.org? The, the Power, yep. The Power Hour? Okay. And remember, folks, that's a .org, not a .com. We had a whole discussion about that in our last episode where uh, I went through the entire thing. Sounds saying riveting. It's Jack trying to make everything for profit. God almighty. Hey, Mike, what, one of the things, um, I mean, you, you brought up so many. I know. A bunch of stuff. Sorry. Let's go first back to the whole so-called transition. One of the things that I think is interesting and frustrating and demonstrates that their goal has nothing to do with energy and has everything to do with economic control and consolidating power is that if in fact they wanted us to, they wanted new energy sources to emerge, their way of going about doing it's the exact opposite of what should happen. That this subsidizing wind and solar into success has never been yeah. An approach to that, that, that works. Yeah. And if they actually wanted these things to work, what they would do is get the government out of the way. They've invested or they've spent so much money on it. If there was a chance in the world of some technology emerging out of that, the way to separate the wheat from the chaff of that process 
would be to let the market sort it out. And then they might have a chance of getting something. I don't know that they would, but I mean, at least their approach now is just to create dependency um, on government so that government can control energy markets and therefore the economy. Yeah, you know, yes. Let me just agree with um, some, if not all, of that. Let, let me put one. Let me let me let me put some context on that. Um, I've been thinking about this for a while because when you look at survey data over the last year, what you see is a is a really um, steady state of sentiment about which is more important: protecting the environment or increasing percentage of renewable energy in our energy system. Right? The question gets asked a bunch of different ways, but. It's always the same question, right? Which would you rather do, protect the environment, install more renewable energy, right? Um, and leaving aside the possibility that both are, um, you know, possible at the same time, and I think both are possible at the same time in some cases, not in all cases, the survey data runs about 70-30 in favor of protecting the environment, okay? What that tells me is that the environmental movement has been Pretty good, and, and not just the environmental movement, right? The natural wealth of a country, as countries get wealthier, they get much more interested in environmental protection. The environmental movement, natural wealth of the United States over the last 50, 60 years, um, 70 years, right? Because um, this predates EPA for sure, um, has taken hold, right? People care about protecting and improving their environment, and that that conforms with everything you know in the world, right? And they care a lot more about it than this this renewable energy thing. All right, which leads me to a conclusion, which I'm only starting to get to in my own head, but this is about the donor class. All of this is about the donor class. This is about shipping money to um, favored allies who own companies, who own banks, who own hedge funds. You know, this is what this is really about. It's not about, uh, it's not even really about government control, except for the purposes of shipping the money, right? Um, which is why, I think it's why, last week when the um, gold, Goldman Sachs came out with the, hey, this thing's going to cost us $1.2 trillion, right, the Inflation Reduction Act. Those tax credits are going to cost us $1.2 trillion instead of $300 billion over 10 years. Literally no one in official Washington batted an eyelash. No Democrat, no Republican, nobody on Team Biden. Nobody said anything at all about it. The only people who said anything about it was the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Um, it's almost like everybody in D.C. is like, great, more money for my, for my cronies. Well, so I, I would push back on you a little bit in terms of it what? not being so much about government control. It's about the donor class. Yeah, the two aren't mutually exclusive. Well, that's, that's the point yeah. I was going to make. That they, yeah. they, It's a symbiotic relationship. It's the same relationship that those of us in the sort of freedom community have always argued against, which is – it's not big business per se that's the problem. It's big business colluding with big government that is the problem. And that's precisely what you see here, and it's permeating throughout every element of society. And the env alleged environmental – no, the actual environmental agenda has become a primary vehicle to achieve that. And we yeah. see it through the SEC stuff, just through everything. Yeah, I, I agree with that, right? And and I think if you – well, forget, forget, forget what I think. Again, if you look at – survey data what it tells you is what it tells you is that people are much less worried about climate change mm -hmm. than they are about clean air and clean water and and you know not seeing oh, un unclosed dumps and stuff like that right um, actual environmental issues right real environmental issues that affect them right and that was the great insight uh, you know this is a great insight of, of President Trump right it, 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 one of one of many right um, he was like, people don't actually care about this climate thing. They care about stuff they see, stuff that's in their neighborhood, stuff that matters to them, right? Um, the problem with that is, of course, to your point, it's a little tough to design, you know, big government subsidy programs for that kind of thing. It's much more boring and steady state environmental stuff. You know, that we've had a lot of success with, truthfully. I mean, honestly, the environmental... Um, Environmental laws in the you know from the from the seventies and Clean Air Act amendments from the nineteen nineties right from nineteen ninety have done a pretty good job. I mean they've cost money, yeah. but not as much as they probably um, we probably anticipated. Um, and, you know there's been actual performances right. Climate change we're not seeing any of that. We've well, been at this we've been at climate change. You think about it. Kyoto was ninety two. Mm -hmm. Was Rio? Rio was ninety two. Kyoto was ninety five. Right. Um, 
it doesn't matter how you look at it, whether your metric is carbon dioxide emissions or greenhouse gas emissions or um, average temperatures. Let's just, I don't even want to fight the average temperature fight, although I could argue, I could argue that average temperatures are flat. But if your metric is we want to reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions, Kyoto's been a spectacular failure. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you compare it, this is something we don't often do, but if you compare it to the relatively same 10-year Clean Air Act amendments in 1990, which which um, led to dramatic declines in sulfur dioxide and ni- oxides of nitrogen, um, you know, one of those things was clearly successful. Like I said, sometimes expensive, but clearly successful. One of them has been a spectacular failure. No way around it, right? So people are... Well, there is a way around it. And that's what the left does is they conflate the two. Yeah, that's true. So that that's true. Many people, when they think environmental issues, they yes. put them all in the same thing. So when they hear climate change, they think acid rain. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, they actually call it climate pollution, which is, I think, a brilliant strategy to basically say, well, or carbon pollution. It makes it sound, you know, like it's soot that's raining down on you. And in fact, it's uh, it's CO two, which I gladly put in my drinking water. That's not exactly yeah, the same type of pollutant. I, I agree. You know, so. Okay, which survey data do you want? Do you want the data on climate or do you want the data on, on whether CO2 is a pollutant or not? I give you both. It, it's a podcast. You're, you give us you're, both. You're welcome. Um, so we went out and did this actual research on, hey, what do people think of when they think of climate change, right? You know what? And the answer is what you just said, that they have poured everything into it, everything into the bucket, right? Now, I resisted this. I'm like, this can't be right. Let's talk about how it's not right and blah, blah, blah. And a, a friend of mine who shall remain nameless because I don't want to get him in trouble said, no, 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 dummy, you're thinking about this the wrong way. If everything's climate, then everything's climate, including planting trees and making the air cleaner and blah, blah, blah. And that, too, was Trump's thing, right? Hey, you really care about climate? Get your own neighborhood, clean air, clean water, all that stuff. Carbon dioxide's a pollutant. A friend of mine asked me to ask this question in a, in a survey about how, eight or ten years ago. I'm like, that's a crazy question because that, that's just not – I guarantee you we're going to lose that question, right? Is CO2 – and the question is pretty straightforward. Carbon dioxide, um, you know, is it, is it a pollutant that, that does damage or is it um, necessary for life and good for plants and trees, right? And we've asked that question in various different ways, but that's always the question, right? And the answer is always about the same. We always get a 60-30 answer on that. 60 saying absolutely it's a pollutant? No. The other way. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Which is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Even, uh, at the, even at this late stage of the propagandize, propagandizement of the American people, we still get that number. Um, and we don't talk about that anyway because, you know, guys on, the Hill are, guys on the Hill are terrified of everything. They don't understand. And so, yeah, don't ask me to say anything. Well, that's one of the... That's one of the areas um, in policy space where this conflation, I think, is most dangerous, is on Capitol Hill amongst otherwise conservative people. There is a growing, I don't know if it's growing, there is a number of conservative people who are pitching the They're not CO2 agenda. They're not conservatives. I said otherwise. They're not otherwise conservatives. They're not right. conservatives at all. Okay. Look, here's my here's what I'm saying. There are Republicans over there. I know what you're saying. Who, I know what you're saying, Jack. And, you're, you're trying. And, you're trying not to. You're, and we've tried to engage with them. Let me and t- we tried to say, let's talk about environment broadly. And it and I, and it always comes down to climate. Let me let me let me. Since we're dancing around, I have no idea who listens to this podcast. Maybe it's just like my mom for this week. But let me make it clear that I'm saying this for me, not for. Jack, nor Rachel, nor Travis, nor anybody here at the lovely Heritage Foundation. The people you're talking about are Kevin Kramer and Bill Cassidy. And they're keeping they're in favor of this carbon border adjustment mechanism. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a carbon tax. So if you're in favor of a carbon tax, if you want a carbon tax, if you think the federal government can spend your money better than you can, you should call up the offices of Senator Cassidy. And that's Bill Cassidy from Louisiana. Senator Kevin Kramer from North Dakota, you should call up their offices and say, I'm totally in favor of a carbon tax. And if you don't want a carbon tax, then you should call up their offices and say, you guys are out of your minds. I'm opposed to this. That's your public service announcement for the day. And <laughs> I want to again point out that that's my preferences entirely. It has nothing to do with the host of this here podcast. <laughs> that, was, that was a gift from El Jefe to us. Right. Because I agree completely. I, so Freely given. This this is the thing, I, you know. I think when people talk about you know 
addressing climate change. Oh. It really it really comes down to so you want to tax CO2. You you want a carbon tax. And then it gets into all this weird stuff about well, how do you do that exactly? Do you have to do does that turn into a tariff on every single thing that you have to readjust well, the crazy all thing, the time? You have to have you have to have an internal you have yes. to have a domestic price on carbon. Right. Otherwise, right. that's what they don't. I mean, otherwise, uh, WTO is going to bounce you right away. Hey, well, it doesn't make any sense. The whole reason for having a border adjustment tax is to adjust for um, that 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 foreign producers are subject to the same constraints or the same conditions that domestic ones are. So, if you're promoting a carbon tax, you are necessarily promoting. Here's I mean, if you're promoting a border adjustment carbon tax, you are necessarily promoting a domestic carbon tax. Well, and I, I, I want to add one point because, you know, the, the textbook economic approach, the, you know, you just tax the externality. It's all very straightforward in a textbook way. What really bugs me, though, is when people talk about, oh, you just tax it at the, you know, marginal social cost of carbon, whatever that is. If you dig in for just a minute to see how that number is established. It is the flimsiest. We're paying subsidies is, is what we're it doing. It is the absolute flimsiest thing you could ever come up with. It could be zero. It could be 100. It could be twice it that. It can't be any of those things because the social cost of carbon is prosperity. Well, um, how about if we say it this way? Using their own metrics, using OMB's own guidance, um, there's obviously data. There's been studies that have been done by people in this building that have the cost of carbon ranging from um, 20 bucks per ton positive, right? Like it's a social good to 300 bucks negative, right? Anything that large to Travis's point is essentially useless. And you know what? I don't even care. My larger point still sticks. If you want to pay a carbon tax, if you think the federal government can somehow do something with that, with that money that they're going to steal from you, take from you, sorry, not steal, take from you, then you should be in favor of this carbon tax. And if not, you should be opposed to it. And, you know, the problem here is, is that we have a bunch of, um, oh, what to, how to describe them nicely. I know you guys want to play along with everybody, so I won't describe them except to maybe call them front groups. We have a bunch of front groups who have been arguing for a carbon tax with varying intensities now for 10 years, 12 years. Um, donors are eventually going to ask, what are you guys doing? We've been giving you millions of bucks a year. They've been spending it. What have you been doing? How are, you, are we? How are we getting closer to a carbon tax? Um, you know, and the answer is, that we're working on it, boss. But you know, these troublesome people on the other side, on the actual right side of the equation, they're making it difficult for us. Yeah, that. But the pressure, the pressure there is from. Is Look, from those groups. It's not. It's not organic. It's not like these senators woke up one morning and said, "You know, I think what I want to be is the only Republican in favor of raising taxes." It's the. It's the same thing that drives too, so much public policy in this town, which is having your cake and eating it too, and not, not being confronted with the, the the truth of the matter. We see it. No one wants a cost associated with anything. I and I know I don't. Well, like I'd like to just keep talking and not have anybody ever throw a rock at me. So let's do that it. doesn't happen. It, it, uh, you know, I bet you I can't get out of this building without somebody being snippy at me. So. Well, I'm going to be snippy with See, you. See, there we go. Not <laughs> um, even going to get out of this room. <laughs> That's not true, Hefe. You you were offered cupcakes when you first came in here. We we treat you very nicely, dude. It's okay for the for like the for like the third time today. It's Lent, guys. It's Lent. It's Lent. You can't have cupcakes in the middle of Lent. I thought you gave up meat. Yeah, but everyone gives up desserts. They're not like sausage cupcakes. Oh I have. no, well. <laughs> They are actually uh, sausage cupcakes. <laughs> Look, I don't know how to say this, but yeah, at least the three boys in this room—they we could spare not having cupcakes for a couple more yeah, weeks. Yeah. We can wait till Easter, I think. Yeah, Rachel, say, however, say no she's more. fine. She say can have no as many more. cupcakes as she wants. I will. Oh, oh, see, <laughs> there we go. But us, mm, I got right. enough. I got enough chins. Go ahead. Next. I, I thought the conversation about. How these policies sort of move around in conservative yeah. or so-called conservative circles is interesting. But be, before I leave that, can yeah. I point out to John Curtis, um, who's vice chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, um, was in fact the Democratic mayor of Provo, Utah until five years ago. Ran as a Democrat, governed as a Democrat. Somehow he's now a magical Republican. Just want to point that out to all the sports fans listening. Go ahead. <laughs> all right. Now that you've gotten all that I feel better. out of your system. I feel better. I want to go back to something else that you had talked about earlier. Yes. Which is... Paul Ludendorff? It, no. Damn it. Um, 
but World War One more broadly. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Archduke. No. Um, no, not that. You were saying how much you how how broad how much support you have for the Biden administration's um, pro gas and oil policies. Yeah. Um, in all seriousness, though, though, while I agree with you, he's doing he's allowing some things to happen. Yeah. And they are probably the result of being confronted with the realities of what his. Uh, uh, Green agenda are especially in the context of of Ukraine and coming out of the pandemic and all of those types of things. Yeah. Um, do you think that the gas and oil industry see the sort of this this olive leaf this olive branch as being uh, sustainable and and a a um, a function of long term policy or is this just him trying to cover his rear end in the near term, and that while he might give them a little bit now, that they still aren't going to make the the large-scale investments necessary to really ramp up production because they don't trust him as far as they could throw him. Yeah. Um, Okay, there's a lot of buckshot in that, so let me see if I could take it one at a time. Um, Yeah, so the Willow Project, right? Let's just talk about Willow for 10 seconds. Um, Right, Willow is a genius operation on the, on the president's part or whoever, probably Ali Zadi, right? The guy who does climate for him, um, right? They 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 gave in for about one hundred eighty thousand barrels a um, a day, right? That's probably max of what Willow's going to um, produce. It's going to get plugged into taps and it'll work well for the Alaskans. Um, at the same time, he he set aside sixteen million acres, set out um, set aside sixteen million acres, put them off limits. For oil and gas production, 16 million other acres in Alaska, um, which he probably can't do, but he did. And then uh, right on top of that last week, right, he did a couple of national monuments, one in Texas and one in, I think, New Mexico. Um, so he, right, he, he popped a hole in the, in the Republicans' talking point about it. he's now not in favor of any oil and gas projects. He's now going to be able to go to Willow or go to Juneau or go to Anchorage and say, right up there, I absolutely came out in favor of an oil and gas project. Well, at the same time, just throwing a bunch of stuff to, to the folks on the left. So that was smart. I don't know anybody who's confused about what side he's on, though. That, that, that's thing, too, right? It, it, um, you know, the oil and gas guys are not children. They're, they're, pretty, they're pretty skilled at this game. They understand that they need to, they need to wait him out. We're going to get another president at some point. Um, the other thing, to your last point, you asked about investment. I want to touch on that real briefly. What you've had is um, consistent underinvestment in the oil and gas sector for about uh, 10 years now and spread across both um, both parties, um, but it's been especially egregious in the last three or four years. Um, the majors are taking steps, have announced lots of investments in the last couple of weeks, uh, last couple of months, really, which to my mind is a good thing because no matter how you look at it, we're going to... And everybody in oil land, all the all the oil analysts, all the oil, um, all the financial analysts who do oil, will tell you this. Um, they like to say there's going to be a mismatch between supply and demand somewhere in the next three to five years because of the lack of investment over the last ten years. That's their polite way of saying expect an oil um, price jump, right? A mismatch between supply and demand only gets solved by killing demand, right. and that only gets solved by increasing prices. So everybody in oil and gas land is expecting this. They're trying to get ahead of it, but these things are so long dated, it's almost impossible to. Does HR1 help them out at all? Like does does HR1 being introduced give the gas and oil guys more confidence that that legislation could actually be implemented in a different political environment and thus makes those investments more um yeah. More likely to, you know, more uh, makes investment easier to make. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, I, I've said this other places. I'll say it here, right? HR one is not a, it's not the greatest thing ever, right? But it's a good first step, and it 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 at least makes everybody think, okay, we're finally serious now about kind of scraping off some of the encrusted um, bureaucracy and 
and you know the barnacles that have grown up around the permitting process, right? It's going to take more than one of these things, but it's a good first step. And there's probably like a da, 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 probably like a forty percent chance that 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 it gets passed, um, winds up on the president's desk. Although the the administration was careless enough to put out a statement of administration policy at the bottom of last week saying, ah, if it comes to my desk, I'm going to veto it. I'm like, seriously, you're the worst administration ever at the blocking and tackling of this thing. You just hold your fire until somebody asks you for a sap, you big. Yeah. Is that, is that categorically, they said anything that looks like HR1 we're going to veto or how, what exactly did they mean there? Because there could be pieces of it that that SAP, through. SAP was SAP was um, SAP was obvious, clear, straightforward. If it shows up in its current form, we're going to veto it. Okay. But you know, I mean, they really worry about the four hundred one, uh, the four hundred one, the section four hundred one, um, the Clean change. Water Act. Yeah, the 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 the, act, the, the section four hundred one is a section of the Clean Water Act that allows states to uh, approve or deny projects that would impair or negatively affect their water quality because they have to meet water quality standards. It's how states have had a de facto veto power over energy projects, especially pipelines and transmission lines, in all fairness. Um, but legislation takes care of that. Um, it's going to be the it's going to be the fighting point in the Senate, right? And the Senate, just so you know, you, you didn't ask me about this, but Senate's going to um, want to staple on a pretty extensive transmission title. <laughs> pretty extensive transmission title, including um, nationalization of the of the transmission system. Right, they're going to want to they're going to give FERC basically the keys to the kingdom, both with respect to siting and pricing. I was going to ask about that because this is a concern. Let's say we get permitting reform, whatever that means to you. Let's, let's we get that right, yeah. and it helps gas pipelines to some extent, yeah. oil and others. What is the risk that? A lot of that bleeds over into something like an eminent domain authority for transmission yeah. lines, and then FERC can basically trample everybody's property rights. I mean, that, that's that's the the risk. I think. Uh, how how do you characterize that? Pretty high. Yeah. Pretty high. Uh, pretty high. It's the only thing the Senate Democrats have said they want. So, I could easily imagine a world in which the Republicans are anxious enough to get something that they yield to the Democrats on nationalization of the transmission system. It's a problem. It's, it's a problem on this thing. I mean, and I'm not sure how the story turns out. I'm really not. But I, I can tell you right now, huge FERC fan. Think you know I'm a huge FERC fan. I think they're one of the best federal agencies out there. Who isn't? Yeah, fair enough. Um, but I really don't want anybody to have any more authority over the transmission system than they already do, especially pricing. Because once once you, once they can allocate prices, uh, costs, guess what? You, me, and everybody else are going to wind up paying for somebody else's project. They've already started down that road. Yeah. So so anyway, I, but I, it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate, um, a legitimate game we're playing here on this. Sorry, that's a detour. I apologize. No, no, it was, it was perfect. It sets up this next question. Where are some places that HR1 could be improved? Or what does HR2 look like? Yeah, what's the next step look like? Yeah, we're eventually going to have to um, – here, here's the – I always get in trouble whenever I talk about HR1 because I always sound negative, and I don't mean to be, but the, uh, the, the, let me help. I don't – I'm not trying to ask in a negative way at all because no, we, we, we like HR1. I, I know, I know. So, so do I. It, it, here's the problem. The problem is, is that – hmm. How to say this the right way. It was constructed largely by folks who have never been through the permitting process, right? So they don't they don't actually know how the permitting process works in reality, right? It's it's a it's as if you let somebody who only knew about legislation from Schoolhouse Rock be a congressman, right? It you just like okay, you know. Um, so so we need to actually get into the guts of what uh, d deadlines are great, timelines are great, but they're not going to be they're not going to change anything, right? They're not going to affect anything. People, agencies are going to do whatever they want. There's no enforcement mechanism. To, to the best of my knowledge, I ask this question on everybody. To the best of my knowledge, nobody's ever gone to jail. Nobody's ever been held a day in jail because they missed a deadline in the federal government. And maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, please let me know. So you're saying the next one should put people in jail for missing the no. deadline? No. What I'm saying is the next one should – if you wanted to really fix permitting, here's what you would do. You would – if you wanted to do an administrative fix, you've heard me do this before. I'll do it again. You would create a single permitting agency like they have in Canada. 
where every aspect of permitting is under one roof and where one person is responsible for it. Right now, if you have a problem with a permit application, you have to go find one of seven or eight different guys. And you know what? When you find that one guy, I guarantee you, no, I've had this happen to me. Oh, I'm not the problem. It's those other guys across the way. It's fish and wildlife or it's National Marine Fisheries, or it's the endangered species guys. It's not me. It's somebody else. It's the Army Corps of Engineers. It's the state guys with the 401 thing. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing. If you put it all in one roof, Congress would then have the ability to um, actually hold somebody accountable. And that's the trick of it, right? If you only can make one change, that's the one change we would we would need to make to really change permitting in this country. If you really want to go in and like get into the, all the organic statutes, you probably need two or three changes to each of the underlying organic statutes. But I would I would trade all of that to have a single permitting agency. It's embarrassing the Canadians do this better than we do. They got a National Energy Board. You know they do fine. We're the only ones who have this for the system, right? On the other hand, I'm, I'm not defending our system. Yeah. To be clear. Um, but if you have a system like Canada has, does it then not make it easier for bad energy policy no. to be? No. 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 Um, you know, if I asked anybody in this room to tell me who's the assistant secretary for Fish and Wild, you wouldn't have any idea. But if I ask, hey, who's running EPA now? You have an idea, right? Because it's an agency. If I said, hey, who's running Interior? You have an idea, right? That's the thing. If you want to improve something in the federal government, in every government, in every human institution, if you want to improve something, you have to make some one person, one person accountable for it. Nobody's accountable for any of these permitting things. Mm-hmm. And when you complain to people, like, well, who, who do I shoot? Who do I, you know, who should I holler at? Blah, blah, blah. And you're like, ah, pick one of eight guys. Uh, never works. One guy, one poor girl, one person. Always the best answer. It's the best answer here. And until we figure that out, you know, we're just going to kind of wander around a little bit. Sorry. No. It's a great answer. Thank you. It's, um, like, I, it's like I've done permitting for 20 years in this town. <laughs> Let me ask you this. And, and everybody needs to remember I was, in fact, a former state regulator as, regulator as well, environmental regulator as well. Well, Yay. if we wouldn't have started talking so quickly, I was going to talk were, a little bit, bit about your oh, uh, experience at the state level. Go but, ahead. But what? But, well, no, now, now we're on something different. What, I don't get any credit at all for being like a hero me, of the revolution at would the you state let, level? Would you let me finish Go ahead. this question? Can I finish one damn thing? Then we will talk about how great El Jefe is, how you aren't El Jefe simply by <laughs> virtue of naming yourself that. You know, the funny <laughs> thing is- your relatives. It wasn't me. It was actually my daughter-in-law. Because <laughs> I think she was uncomfortable with calling me Mike. Good. Sign of respect. She should be. But, you know, Mr. McKenna was a little formal, so she wound up with El Jefe. Kind of, kind of stuck. There you go. I like it. And, I, you know, I, I think you earned it. Here's, here's the thing that I've noticed. Uh-oh. Every time that I have a difficult question for Mike, sorry, for El Jefe, he hits it out of the park. And I, I'd like to ask him a tough one now because I'm trying to square this circle. I, I don't fully understand what happened. To get back to Willow. Yeah. So – the quotes from the administration were something like, oh, our hands were tied. We would have lost the legal fight. We would have lost in the courts. Yeah. My question is, they've done so many things that they know for sure that they're going to lose in the courts. Yeah. What makes this different? You know, the student loan bailout stuff. They, they knew yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. They walked into it knowing that they were going to lose. <laughs> what, what's, what's the difference here? Is it just politics? They just wanted to, to check the box and say, oh, I, I did a fossil fuel thingy. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and, to, and, and to, to, to answer your question, the, the, the underlying question, um, I got in trouble with, with, um, with one of my customers. I was talking to their board, and I said, look, a lot of this, a lot of this um, administration is you know, regulation by press release. Like the student, the student loan thing is a classic example. They knew they didn't have the authority to do any of that. The major questions doctrine, we're coming up on one now, the California waiver, right? The major questions doctrine means anything. Nobody's going to let California ban internal combustion engines without Congress saying something specific about it, right? So these guys, they know the courts are going to bounce them. They don't care. The Willow thing, they wanted to do, and they wanted to look like they were being dragged into it, but they definitely wanted to do it. I like it. I mean, it's it's good politics for them. It's going to, it's going to be now hard to um, – it's going to be hard to just uniformly, like, hit them um, with a bunch – with a general – you guys are anti-oil and gas because they're like – are you kidding me? 
We've approved a bunch of gas pipeline certifications at FERC, and we did Willow, and we got LNG out the door, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it, it, it's, they've managed to muddy the water pretty significantly in the last eight months. I have a quick question. Yo. Could you argue, because, I mean, at the federal level that's happening, but we're seeing a lot of state-level policies getting implemented here, too. So is part, uh, I guess, is part in hope that the states are kind of taking on this role of, of implementing these administrative, like, federal-level policies at the state level? I mean, like, look at California with their natural gas bans. I mean, Travis and... Um, and and Kevin, we had on last last episode, Diaratna last episode, talking about offshore uh, yeah. wind farms. So, yeah. kind of, is that the hope here? And let me tack one quick thing onto that. What gives you any special insight into energy policy making no. at the state level? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no earthly idea. You, look, you guys invited me. I didn't invite myself on. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. What, what the um, I don't like to call them the environmental community because they're not that anymore, right? What the what the left likes to do, and the left isn't even a good description. But what the left likes to do is try to test things in different markets, right? And California's always been their preferred test mm -hmm. market, right? They like to go test the the bands on cars, on stoves, right? And if you think about it. To, to, to Jack's point, they've gone from being, hey, we'll subsidize you to, you know what, we're just, we're just going to ban the thing we don't right. want, right, uh, and see if they can get away with it. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of that that goes on. The tricky thing is is that in about a dozen states that are that are um, got their heads turned around the wrong way on this stuff, um, and there's there about three dozen are like, eh, I'm willing to play along to a certain extent, but mm -hmm. eh. And you could wind up in a situation where you get a Virginia who's like, yeah, offshore wind for everybody, an $8 billion project, right? For the 8 million ratepayers in the Commonwealth, you're like, that's a thousand bucks per. That's a lot to give to Dominion just so we can have a couple of wind turbines spinning power out of 35 cents per. Mm -hmm. um, you run across a guy like Youngkin who's like, let me just put that on ice for a second or two, right? <laughs> Um, you know, the only you can only do it in places where you're absolutely certain you're not going to ever get a challenge. Mm -hmm. Massachusetts, California, Washington, even Oregon is sort of a jump ball sometimes on this stuff. So we'll see. How do we change the politics of the, uh, you know, the big shiny thing phenomenon? We talked about in New Jersey, the governor was basically saying, well, I want 11,000 megawatts. And we're going to build all these projects and they're going to be hundreds of turbines out there. It's going to be amazing. It's, he wants it to be tied to him. He wants to do a thing. He wants to build something. How do you how do you get over that part of it? Because it's I I think part of it is explaining the cost and saying, well, sure, uh, Phil Murphy gets to look good here, but you're he's spending your money. Yeah, um, I agree. The cost is always the best answer. Here's the tricky thing about coming back to cost over and over again, especially in a place like New Jersey. Um, you know the income inequality. This is a this is a terrible thing to say, but it tends to be true. Income inequality is worse in blue states, so you tend to wind up with a bunch of rich people who are not as price sensitive as like the middle class, and you wind up with a bunch of poor people who are who are either not paying their bills or paying electricity bills now, or paying subsidized electricity bills. And they are they are too they are also price insensitive for different reasons. But you got to make the case. The thing is, is that we never have good metrics on this stuff, right? In Virginia, Dominion was careless enough to tell us it's going to be $8 billion. So right away, you're like, hey, that's interesting. There are about 8 million people in Virginia, 1000 bucks per, right? It was clear, right? People sort of got it. Um, it the great thing and the terrible thing here is, uh, this is both, but it's true, eventually all these projects are going to um, fail, or get trimmed down to the point where they're they're um they're demonstration projects, right? No one's really going to build eleven thousand wind turbines anywhere. No one's going to build eight billion dollars of offshore wind because you can't justify it. You can't justify it to anybody. You can't justify it to your public utility commission. You can't bid it into a PJM market. You can't justify any of it, right? It's a little bit like the the, the railroad in California. Back to your point about California, right? The the um, what was going to be the uh, San Francisco to LA line, right? Remember that nine billion dollars. It's now the Merced to Bakersfield line, 
which I don't know if you've ever been to Merced or Bakersfield. Been to Merced? Merced? No. North Bakersfield. North Bakersfield? Nope. You guys got to get out of the studio a little bit, man. See some some of the country. Merced. California, though. California's a beautiful state. Uh, Yeah. I'm not yet prepared to give up on California as part of this United States. It's a beautiful state. It's got lots of good people in it. We're not giving up on California. Um, But the price price tag now is like $25 billion. It's never going to get built. Because it doesn't make any sense. And like I said, the great thing about the great thing about all this stuff is very few things in this country get built that don't make sense. Ultimately, the finance, the financial stuff, eats everything else up. But the 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 yes. However, it's also true that the initial there's there is often an initial mm-hmm. spending spree on these things. Yep. So you don't get all the windmills, but you get some windmills. That's right. You don't get all the track, but you get some track. Yeah, yeah, and we well, just see it time and again. I mean, here's the problem. We're a fantastically rich country. We can afford to be stupid. And the good news is we access that stupidity on the regular. Yeah. And, and you know, folks on the right don't ever like to grapple with those two truths. We're rich and we're dumb. And that's just that. You know, yeah. we, we, you know to, borrow from my, to borrow from Otto von Bismarck, right? The Lord loves idiots, drunks, and Americans, <laughs> right? And is, you know, you think about some of the stuff we spend money on, you're like, eh, not well, wrong. I don't disagree with that. Not wrong. You know, it's a fabulously wealthy country, and we run around like you can't even get a decent cappuccino after lunch, man. But we like to always say we are like that until it matters. I hope that continues to be true in the future. I've, <laughs> This country's GDP, this country's GDP above the line, what the IRS knows about, is like $27 trillion, probably another $5 trillion below the line. What I call the real economy. Yeah, yeah, the real economy. It's crazy. <laughs> it's insane. You know, we, we just, we have a lot of room, and we have now for 100, 120 years. So, you know, we're getting sloppy. Yeah. We get sloppy. Now, before we close up, I want to ask you something. I try to... Um, I hope that the answer to what I'm about to ask you is what I think it will be, but I don't know. And um, What the hell? Well, I want to be optimistic. Okay. That's where I'm going with this. I'm always optimistic. Um, it seems to me on this whole global warming agenda stuff, yeah. some of the air is being let out of it at a in, in the public. People's reception to it, people's support of it. Um, it doesn't seem as pervasive as it was even a mm-hmm. year ago. Um, what do you think of that? Have you seen any of that in the polling work you've done? Um, yeah. Is there any shift? Not really. Um, not really. And, I, and I'm not telling you not to be optimistic. Um, you know, people have some, there's some durable answers, right? Um, climate change always ranks at the bottom, at or really near the bottom of, of uh, most important issues, right? When you just, he, Travis is nodding, he's seeing this stuff, right? When you, when you say, hey, what's the most important issue facing the United States and just open-end it? You know, climate change is there, but the it's economy, always, inflation. There's eight, nine things above it always. I was going to say there, there, there's always, there's always, you know, the the answer is always, um, you know, economy, education, crime. You know, are in, you know, take up fifty percent, and like climate change is like one percent, right? You ask a thousand people, ten of them say, yeah, climate change. You know, even if you combo and say, okay, second most important, eh, climate change. Okay, um, that's a sturdy thing, right? Um, if you ask, you know, hey, how important it is, they're like, yeah, okay, it's it's pretty important or whatever. Um, you say, hey, do you want it addressed? Yeah, I'd like it addressed. But when you say, look, when you start actually going through some of the policy prescriptions, I was going to shock you, but doing research is always at the top, right? Yeah, we need to do more research, absolutely. Subsidizing big companies? Ah, not quite as unpopular as a carbon tax, but pretty close. Mm-hmm. And then when you ask the actual question, all right, how much are you willing to pay? That willingness to pay question, I, nobody else asks this except for me. I don't understand it. Um, well, I do understand it. We've been asking that for 20 years now, and the numbers have been shockingly um, flatlined for 20 years, right? We always come up with the same numbers. It's always, hey, the average is like 200 bucks because we always get a bunch of chuckleheads at the end who are like $10,000. Um, you know, the median, actual important statistic in a democracy is the median, ladies and gentlemen. Median's always between 25 and 50 bucks. This is a year, right? Keeping in mind, for those of you who have trouble tracking this, 
United States government spends $30 billion a year. United States government spends $30 billion a year on climate with this Inflation Reduction Act. That number is going to go to 60. So they're already spending 100 bucks per household per year. So they're already above what people would pay. So 20 to 50, and then there's always about 40% are just like zero is my number. Those numbers have been really consistent for 15, 17, 18, 20 years now. They haven't changed. Um, and you know what? The, the, forget the survey data for a second. You know how I you know how I know that survey data is right. Nobody in this latest round has talked about carbon taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Literally, the only people talking about a carbon tax now are the senators from North Dakota and Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Well, and us saying it's a terrible idea. Yeah, but the Democrats are just like they could have passed a carbon tax. They 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 had the they, and you know what they didn't? They didn't even talk about it. They look at they they see in the same data I'm looking at. They're like, well, we're not jumping off that. So I have, I have a question about the survey. So so be optimistic is what I'm telling you. Stuff. Very, so, I will be. So there's the willingness to pay with with cash question. Do you ever get into polling on sort of the wildlife impacts? What people are willing to put up with? For example, offshore no. wind, yes. whales, no, etc. Yeah. Have, have you explored that? No. Um, I, no. I know what you're asking, and the answer is no. Well, it's like, how many whales are you willing to kill to put up that I, offshore wind yeah, farm? Yeah, it, it would require, I'll tell you what it would require right now. It would require a sequence of at least three surveys over a couple of years, because it would take you that take me that long to figure out how to ask the question the right way, um, in a way that didn't totally contaminate the rest of the survey. It, it's, um, it, you know, it, it, it's, a remarkably, um, it's a remarkably steady state. It really is. I'm, I'm, you know, and it, it, it doesn't matter, right? The, the, hey, climate change is man-made or natural or whatever. That stuff moves around. How important it is, you know, moves around, although everyone always marks it at the bottom. Um, but what hasn't moved around is willingness to pay. That's mm-hmm. just, boom. It's like that. And like I said, that's, how, that's, that's why we have not, that's why we have an Inflation Reduction Act instead of a carbon tax. Right. Yeah. Very good. Well, Mike, thank you. That was all Extremely interesting. As I suspected, you would be an awesome guest, entertaining and informative. Now, we're not done yet, though. Okay. Um, Don't leave. We have one more segment that Travis runs called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And um, we're going to do a quick fire segment of some recent goings on in energy and environment space. So I'm going a little bit more philosophical this time. Uh, Here's here's. Here's the thing I want to explore, because this is a, yes. a paper that I'm working on now, actually. It's about the... I'm sorry, you're going to get me to write your paper for you? Is that yes. what's going on here? Go ahead. That's exactly <laughs> the plan. You've already written three other ones throughout this interview, so <laughs> I want to thank you for that. <laughs> Doing my part for the cause. Go ahead. Well, it's this idea, you know, we've, we've talked about the concept of, you know, are we having enough children? Is it the mark of a good, flourishing society that, you know, we start to have fewer and fewer kids. One thing that I've been thinking about, because these are people that I know, this is like anecdotal, but people that I know, they're saying, well, of course, I wouldn't want to have children because, you know, world's going to hell in a handbasket. Why would I bring a child into this world that's falling apart? And I I just disagree with that. So I, I, the, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly here is like, so good, I think we can all agree, babies are inherently good. They're adorable. Uh, anybody who doesn't like babies, probably something wrong with them. Um, the bad, I think, is this layer of climate guilt that we put on everybody on this whole, you know, growth mindset, even in terms of population growth. I, I've had exchanges with a bunch of people who think, well, we need to have fewer people on the planet. Some people think zero. Um, and I guess that's the ugly part is there are actually – you know, the movement is something like birth strikers or voluntary extinction project. You, you hear all about this stuff. I'm curious to get your thoughts on sort of is – am I in some kind of bubble where this is the kind of thing that I think about or is it is it actually going on where people are starting to think, well, can I even – can I even have a family that I want given climate concerns? Because I think there are a lot of people who are, who are thinking in those terms. But – Back to your point about how much are people actually worried about it. If it's so far down the list, maybe it's not a big driver. But I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I have the great virtue of not living in D.C. Um, and having grown up in New York City. Um, 
So I've never actually met a person who's not going to have kids because of climate change. I mean, I read about them in the newspapers. I've never run across any of them in focus groups or anything like that. That said, um, you know, there's a, um, yeah, there's a, there, there is a general, there is a general sense. There is a general sense among folks on the left that um, more humans are bad. Humanity is the problem here, right? Um, you know, and they and they have they have climate. You know, you see it in the climate porn, the climate porn they produce, right? You know, the, there was a couple of shows a couple of years back about what if humans didn't exist? How long would it take everything to go back to nature? Kind of thing. I I, I don't know how else to describe it other than climate porn. That's what it was, right? Um, it, it, it's a problem, right? It's a problem. You know, the United States is going to be insulated from it because we assimilate better than anybody else. Probably the most important skill we have, and it's going to be dispositive in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, but it affects everywhere. It affects Russia. It affects China. It affects South Korea. It affects Japan, right? Japan is a dying, dying country as we're sitting here talking. In all fairness, everybody in Europe, except with the exception of Poland, is a dying country as well, right? Um People don't talk about this enough. Right? It, the climate thing is one thing, you know, but people don't talk about this enough. If if you're, you know, the, the two countries that are the two healthiest countries on the planet, three, Nigeria, India, and the United States, um, like I said, our advantages, we assimilate. Indian advantages, they haven't gotten infected yet with the, with the idea that humanity is bad. Um, and neither is Nigeria, right? Um, it's also Nigeria's home to the most active Roman Catholic Church and the most active um, Muslim community, right? So they're, yeah. you know, they're in a contest. Um, it's a huge problem, um, and it's going to affect all kinds of different things. And um, m- certainly, my children, certainly your children, are going to wind up having to deal with with the consequences of a of a world in which um, allies are depopulated and enemies are depopulated, and and. I'm not sure what that means. I do know one thing what it means, right? In China, you're going to wind up in the next generation with anybody's guess. Probably 100 million more males than females um, because of selective abortions mostly. Uh There is no, no society on earth that's going to be able to survive that kind of problem. Um, which is why when anytime somebody says, oh, the Chinese are going to be the next great power, I'm like, the Chinese are going to be out of business in about a generation. I know that's an unpopular thing to say. And that doesn't say, by the way, I'm a big China hawk. It doesn't mean I'm like, hey, we should let off the gas. We should accelerate all the time. But they have fundamental problems that we just don't have. And that's a fundamental problem. Literally, it is the fundamental problem. The future, it turns out, belongs to the people who are actually alive. And that's, you know, if you're not going to have kids, they're not going to have the future. And, it, it, you know, and it's directly related to a bunch of different things, mostly deterioration of religion, I think. I get pushback when I say that in public, though. And I know you, you probably can tell how concerned I am about the pushback. Um, did I write your paper good n- enough? I think so. And I think there, you, so you did add an element to it, which is basically I've, I've heard this theme that environmentalism is the new. It's like the environmental left. That's their church. Uh, and I, I do think that's part of it because most churches want you to have babies. I think the environmental left is the church that says the exact opposite. Correct. Um, excellent demographic data, the best demographic data on the planet, CIA fact book. Hmm. Yeah, every year, just great stuff. Yeah, it's online. I put it online. I recommend it highly. Well, there you go. Yeah, man, I'm even doing your research for you. <laughs> Almighty. I'm a yeah. research assistant. Maybe we should carry this on for another hour so I can get... A year's worth of work out of, out of Mike. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much. Mike McKenna, president of MWR Strategies. You also have yourself a little podcast there, don't you? Yeah, man. Uh, me and Tom Pyle do, uh, what do we call it? The Unregulated Podcast. We uh, pop it out every Friday morning or Thursday night, whenever we whenever we finish it. We're not organized like you guys. All right. All right. Um, do you have anything else you're working on you want to tell folks about? Not really. I, I, I really don't. How, how would I, you I, I have time to do work on your own when you're doing all of our work for I, us? I really, I really don't think me talking about what I'm doing is going to help, help any of it get done. Um, I would say, you know, if you like this, you can read me twice a week in the Washington Times. My columns run on Mondays and Thursdays. And I just turned in a column. I filed a column today. 
uh, arguing that congressmen should be paid twice what they're paid. We hmm. should link that together with term limits. Is that just to get better talent or what's the, yes. what's the thinking there? Okay. Yes. You do term limits to wash out the bad guys. You get more money so we get people in mid-career who are like, yeah, I'll go to D.C. for six years and do something good. But you got to have them together. Well, I'm I mean, not sure how I feel about that, but we don't need to discuss that right now. We're trying to shut this yeah. this puppy down, but paying politicians more, I guess, whatever. <laughs> You're the expert on that. <laughs> on that note. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And if you didn't like us, please tell your enemies to check us out. Either way, just tell someone. Travis... Rachel, Mike, any final words? I have something quick to note. Um, If you are looking for this episode and potentially others, you can find the Power Hour anywhere you get your podcast. Simply search the Power Hour Heritage to access our full episode library. Thank you very much. So there you go, folks. That's it. Remember to email us at, Travis, this is your part. The Power Hour at heritage.org because we're an org. Not a com. It's not a com. Thank you much, everyone. Thank you all. We'll see you next time. Mm